Welcome back to the Exploration Medicine Podcast. My name is Dana Levin. What you're about to hear is a record of my experience as part of the Institute for Nautical Archaeology's expedition to excavate the Western Antalya wreck. This merchant ship sank over 4,000 years ago during the mid to late Bronze Age while carrying cargo from the island of Cyprus to unknown ports in the Northwest. Over the next two months, we'll follow these experiences as they were recorded in real time. This one is the second of those field notes. July 3rd, 2019. And so it begins. The government of Turkey requires an additional permit for foreign scientists. So I spent an extra night in the Octanese University dorms in Kemer and met the rest of the U.S. citizens on the expedition today when we crammed into a car and drove to one of the nearby permitting offices. I have not yet been aboard the Virazontu, but will be headed there shortly. Getting here was a typical rushed travel day. I worked an overnight shift, came home, packed a few final items, got to taxi to the airport, and discovered I was there about three hours before check-in started. Somehow I'd put the flight in my calendar as much earlier than it actually was, but I guess that's better than misscheduling it to be later, so it worked out. And I spent the extra time playing bag Tetris to avoid paying excess weight fees. I also discovered that security agents have no idea what to do with scuba gear. It looks pretty odd on x-rays, and I had to put my regulators into my carry-on to save on fees, so I was stopped at pretty much every security line and someone had to examine them. On the plus side, the Turkish security people and I invented some kind of sign language that either communicated that the gear is meant for diving, or that the gear makes me sound like Darth Vader. Either way, they decided I was not a threat, and I was able to get through each security line in time to catch my flight to Istanbul and later Antalya. I want to share that there's a bit of coolness flying in and out of Istanbul. The area was settled somewhere in the Neolithic period around 6,000 years ago, and it was made into a named city of Byzantium by the Greek settlers. Then it became part of the Roman Empire, about six years before Pompeii was buried under ash from Mount Vesuvius, and when Emperor Constantine came to power in September of 324, he established it as the eastern administrative capital of the Roman Empire and named it Nova Roma. This name clearly never stuck, and instead people just called it Constantinople. After the western part of the empire began to collapse, the still prosperous eastern half separated and began referring to itself as the Byzantine Empire, which lasted until May 29, 1453, when the last Roman emperor was killed and Sultan Mehmed II captured the city, declaring himself Kaiser Irum. I apologize for butchering the language, but essentially that means Caesar of Rome. He then declared the city the capital of the new Ottoman Empire, and around then is also when the name Istanbul started to appear, but that didn't become official until after 1923 when the Turkish Republic was founded. The modern history of the area is even more complex than that brief overview, so I'm not going to pretend that I fully understand it and won't go into it here, but the point is that Istanbul is a city that has outlived empires and one that has mixed cultures from Asia and Europe and the Middle East for more than 6,000 years. It illustrates the concept that government is just a temporary construction overlying a much larger human story, and that whatever you call yourself, in the end, it's just a name born out of the particular time and place you happened to be born. A city as old and storied as Istanbul illustrates that. Unfortunately, I was not able to explore the city as much as I would like to, since I only had 1.5 hours to make my connecting flight. But it sits on the Black Sea and is quite large and modern looking from the air, with all kinds of ancient structures mixed in. 
It has architecture and buildings from each of its bronze, iron, steam, and oil eras, many of which are still in use today. From the air, even the coastline looks artificial. And much of it probably is, since it's been built up over millennia to accommodate ever-larger ships, from the wooden galleys of the Bronze Age all the way up through the oil tankers of today. It makes sense, since the city sits between Europe and Asia. It's an obvious meeting point between what was the major center of science and development before the thousands BC and the markets of what later became Rome. It's a trade zone on a seaport, and it was an obvious spot for cultures to mix when the predominant mode of travel was walking or riding carts along the Eurasian continent. However, I'm not part of a trade caravan, and I didn't walk into or out of Istanbul. Instead, I flew south for 45 minutes and landed on the Mediterranean coast. This coast sits between what was once the Assyrian Empire and the Phoenician, Persian, Mycenaean, and Hittite states. These were various experiments in government and economics that combined ethnic groups, trade, and a number of other characteristics into empires that lasted hundreds or thousands of years before the ones we think of as ancient today. For perspective, our wreck is thought to be from about a thousand years after the construction of the Giza pyramids in Egypt, and about a thousand years before the Greek soldiers besieged and destroyed the mining city of Troy. One more point before we leave for the Virazone 2. I learned that the Turkish name for the Mediterranean is Akdeniz, which means White Sea. Apparently, in ancient Turkish, the colors are traditionally associated with directions, so in this case, white is associated with south, and black is associated with north. So, the White Sea is literally the Southern Sea, and the North Sea was, and still is, referred to as the Black Sea. I found that interesting. In any case, we're heading out of here soon, so I will record this next one from the deck of the Virazon 2, for real this time. Greetings from the bridge deck of the archaeological research vessel Virazon 2, based out of Bodrum, Turkey, and now moored just west of Antalya. Arriving at the site of our excavation is a little surreal. It's a remote, idyllic Mediterranean bay beneath a lighthouse that stands high up on beige, pink, and rust-colored limestone cliffs. The shoreline is rough and steep, but the pastel colors painted by afternoon sunlight sparkling off the surface of the Mediterranean make it seem benign and welcoming. There's a light breeze coming from around the edge of the bay, and a small island chain fades into the distance off our stern. So it's pretty welcoming and comfortable here. But 4,000 years ago, it must have been a very different scene. Now, we spent a few days diving already to secure mooring lines for our vessel, the Virazon 2, and another vessel, the Archeo, joining us from the Turkish Akdeniz University. The two ships must be in close proximity to the wreck to support the dive teams, yet they have to keep enough separation so they don't collide with each other or the rocks. After all, the same processes are still happening today as they were in the Bronze Age, and having a metal hull gives us only slightly better protection than the wooden hulls of our ancient cousins. The challenge has been that despite the rocky shoreline, the deep areas of this, of this plain have very few rocks large enough to hold a 170-ton ship. And this is further complicated by the depth limiting our working time at the bottom to about 20 minutes. So that means we have 20 minutes to arrive at the bottom, search for a suitable rock, loop a line around it, tie a knot, test it to ensure it's secure before we need to ascend again and tie it to the ship. The Virazon 2 itself, which is named for the Spanish wind, Virazon, and not the telecommunications company, is quite modern and well-designed. It's about 25 meters long and 8.1 meters wide. 
It draws a 2.8 meter draft, which means it sits about 2.8 meters under the waterline. And the ship has a large aft deck overhung with an A-frame crane that for lift purposes and a canopy that forms the floor of the bridge deck above, which is where I'm sitting right now. This wet deck is covered with gear, racks of diving equipment, compressed gas tanks, hyperbaric chamber, hangar pipes, electrical conduits, the compressor, scuba cylinders, and a number of other functional items like lines, pumps, and control panels. Heading forward from that deck, there are two short staircases on either side of the decompression chamber leading to the main cabin. The first deck you enter has the toilets, showers, conference, dining, briefing room, kitchen, and computer workroom. The whole cabin is brightly lit, clean, and air-conditioned. There are two flat-screen TVs for briefing displays, and a number of computers lined up to receive photographs, depth and distance information, and enable us to build digital models of the site, with, which help us build more accurate dive plans and also get more information about the wreck itself. This cabin deck also contains the medical station, with oxygen tanks, medications, bandages, the automated external defibrillator, salves, and a booklet of recompression tables. Between the conference room and the hygiene compartment is a central stair leading down to the sleeping quarters. This consists of eight two-bunk cabins separated from the central corridor by heavy curtains and featuring portholes, personal gear closets. A small room forward of these has an additional two bunks and a tiny bathroom. The center of this deck has a number of closets for sheets, blankets, towels, and other common gear. There's even a washing machine and a dryer on board between my cabin and a shelf full of life preservers. Back outside on the wet deck, there are three other stairs. The longer twin stairs on the port and starboard side of the ship lead up to the bridge deck. And this deck looks a bit like the upper deck on most large ferries, with four sturdy plastic tables, uh, storage benches, and life preservers, as well as a control tower-style wheelhouse, which also has a workspace in the back and houses the captain's cabin. The final stair, hidden behind a hatchway on the starboard side, takes you down to the engineering deck. Now this has a small machine shop table and all the mechanics of the ship, including engines, a desalination plant, sewage processing station, climate control system, and electric generators. It looks like you would expect the engine room of a ship to look, with lots of pipes and pumps and clanging equipment with exposed wiring and gear everywhere. The wreck itself is about 50 meters below us and about the same distance from the sharp limestone walls, so it's pretty easy to imagine how a sudden shift in the winds could push these heavy, hard-to-steer galleys helplessly towards the rocks. There's no Coast Guard in the Bronze Age, no Navy, and the most experienced sailors were the ones on the vessels like the one that lies below us now, so if they crashed into those rocks, there really is no hope of rescue. They would lose the ship, they'd lose its cargo, and they'd probably lose the crew as well. Now there's a particularly prominent formation just starboard of us that, despite the tranquil scene, makes it easy to imagine how our ship could have crashed into that spot and sank 4,000 years ago amid the sound of tearing timbers and spilling cargo. This area is one of the first places on Earth that humans develop complex civilizations, so it's one of the richest for archaeological work uncovering our heritage as a species. So we're floating above the site of this Bronze Age wreck that was discovered last year during a survey so that we could dive on it and learn more about it. The area around us has so far yielded three of the oldest shipwrecks in the world. The Geladonia shipwreck, the Ulaburun shipwreck, and now this one, the Kumluka shipwreck. 
Each of them has been named for the location they were found, and all three lie within sight of each other in this small area on the southern coast of Turkey, marking this as a pretty clearly treacherous area for ancient sailors. Now, we don't know much about this wreck yet, because this is really the first expedition to investigate it, but we do know that it was carrying copper and tin ingots, most likely from Cyprus, to the civilizations located in the southern Aegean. They were merchant traders in the Bronze Age, and the other shipwrecks investigated by this organization, the Institute for Nautical Archaeology, show that the ships in this area typically ranged between 10 and 20 meters long, that's 40 to 65 feet, and they were oval-shaped, with their widest point, the beam, being between 3 and 5 meters, or 11 to 18 feet. They had an open deck above a covered cargo hold, they had no heavy keel, and occasionally had a small movable shack that the captain could use located near the back. They were powered through oars or with a single square set sail at the center, and they were steered by means of two specialized oars that were located at the back. Now there's a lot more to Bronze Age ship construction, but as you well know, I am not an archaeologist, so we're going to focus on other aspects of this expedition, like why they brought a doctor in the first place. So to answer that, this wreck is not buried under rocks and soil, or at least not as much as the land-based sites would be, but it lies under tons of seawater. So the entire excavation has to take place from a ship above the wreck, and the archaeologists must don scuba gear and leave the deck of our own ship to dive 50 meters, or close to 160 feet down, to the ancient one below us. Now this poses a number of challenges, and these range from routine ones like sun exposure, seasickness, dehydration, perpetual wetness, and slips, trips, and falls, to the unique of decompression sickness, nitrogen narcosis, oxygen toxicity, squeezes, reverse squeezes, and undersea envenomations. Now, Ina, the Institute for Nautical Archaeology, has learned through 30 years of experience that they like having a physician on board because it ensures a better chance of success for their missions. But there's limited bunk space, and the excavation takes precedence, so they look for doctors who are also accomplished divers with expertise in extreme environment and wilderness medicine. So that's the first entry. Tomorrow, we'll have more attempts to secure our moorings, and once that's set, we'll be getting a host of expedition gear, safety equipment, mapping material, and tags positioned around the site. This preparation phase will occupy us well into the second week of the expedition at least, but it's essential to ensure the safety of the dive teams and the success of the excavation. As with any procedure, trip, or project, being well set up ahead of time drastically increases the chances of success. And it's probably the most important theme throughout this podcast. The less forgiving the environment, the more critical that preparation becomes. So this is Dana Levin for the ARV Virazon 2 in Antalya. Signing off. Thank you for listening to the Exploration Medicine Podcast. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. It helps us reach a wider audience. We'd also love it if you'd subscribe to our email list so we can update you directly when we post a new episode. A special thanks to our production team, Sultana Pefli, Jeremy Seeker, and Emily Stratton. Music is written and recorded by David Keogh. For more information on each episode, including a comments board, please visit our website at explorationmedicine.com. And as always, feel free to reach out with questions, comments, corrections, thoughts, or anything else by emailing us at podcast at explorationmedicine.com. Thanks for listening, and see you soon.